Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. A little bit about robotic lymph node dissection, which pairs well with the forthcoming talk by Dr. Jaratha on uh, penile cancer. And I will say that some of my, one of my strongest memories from residency, Chad, was our case, uh, one of our first cases together involved uh, a inguinal lymph node dissection for penile cancer. So it's fitting that you come back today to discuss this topic. Yeah, we've come a long way. So thanks, thanks a lot, Gina. I really appreciate it. Um, it really is an honor to be able to give this talk to residents, faculty, whoever is, is there listening. Um, <clears throat> as Gina mentioned, she, we were sort of residents together. And although she was our junior resident, in many ways, we learned a lot from her. Um, She's really an exemplary teacher and just role model for residents. And uh, the folks at Columbia are really lucky to have her. And I'd like to thank her and Alex and all the other folks who put together this Empire Lecture Series. It's really left a great mark on urology in general, um, not just in New York, but all across the country. So thank you very much. Um, Gina, I wasn't sure, was there a, a question and answer session with residents before, or do we go straight into the talk? I want to launch you straight into the talk since we're a little bit behind. Um, I'll invite our audience to post questions in the chat and I'll give that, I'll pose those to you at the end of your talk. Okay, perfect. All right, so as Gina said, Dr. Badalado said, we're going to talk about uh, robotic surgery and the management of penile cancer. So uh, I have no disclosures and no conflicts of interest related to this talk. Um, <clears throat> you're going to get a talk about management of penile cancer, so I won't belabor this point too much, but in terms of treatment, so the treatment of, of squamous cell carcinoma of the penis involves the primary resection of the tumor followed by lymphadenectomy in select cases. And we'll talk about what those select cases are in a second. Um, the, basically, the patients who are high risk for having their inguinal and pelvic lymph node, nodes involved are the ones that will probably benefit most from a lymph node dissection, which is typically done uh, open as a standard of care. But I'm going to talk about my approach to doing this robotically and show you some videos as to how I do this. Just a quick review of the NCCN guidelines. So for uh, clinical N0 or non-palpable inguinal lymph nodes, there's a select group of patients, i.e. intermediate or high-risk patients. Those are patients who are T1B, basically um, poorly differentiated superficial tumors, uh, or those with lymphovascular invasion, or T2 tumors, those with uh, corpora spongiosum or greater corpora cavernosum involvement. Those patients are the ones that you typically take for inguinal lymph node dissection or as you can see here, dynamic sentinel lymph node biopsy. However, we don't do that much here in the US. So in the US, the inguinal lymph node dissection is, is performed more commonly than sentinel lymph node biopsies. For palpable lymph nodes, so those are um, unilateral, less than four centimeters. If you have a low risk primary tumor, so one that really doesn't match up with having node positive disease. So if it's a T1A or just a TIS, and there's a question of a palpable nodes, you biopsy the node first, and then if it's positive, you do a node dissection. If the primary tumor is high risk, again, that's T1B or T2 or greater, then you go straight to the inguinal lymph node dissection if they've got palpable uh, inguinal lymph nodes. And then there's, you know, we, you're, again, you're gonna get a lecture on management of this, but you know, if you have bulky lymph nodes, there's roles for, a role for chemotherapy in certain situations, but we're just talking about mainly 
high suspicion, but clinical N0 nodes. That's what the robotic approach is, the area where it fits in uh, best, as opposed to bulky lymph nodes. So how did this all come to be? So with, with robotic surgery, just like with everything else, the translation has been towards minimally invasive, less morbid approaches, quicker recovery, and so on. And if any of you have done an inguinal lymphadenectomy in residency, and Gina alluded to you know, cases we've done, you remember that a lot of the concern is over skin flap necrosis because you're dissecting a flap and basically raising that up and you create quite a, a dead space underneath there and there's a risk of thinning that layer of skin. The other thing is you get lymphatic fluid, obviously filling underneath there so you can form lymphocytes or seromas and then wound infection is another dreaded complication. If you've seen a necrotic flap with a wound infection and then the debridements and then having to put the uh, wound vax on, it's a pretty morbid operation. And then after they've survived and gotten uh, recovered from all of that, then you have lymphedema to deal with. So an open inguinal lymphadenectomy is quite a morbid procedure. And in fact, when you do them, you know, patients are on bed rest in, for, for many people in protocol post-op, they've got stockings, you're, you're using um, uh, a lot of anticoagulation to avoid DVT risk. And then of course there's pain. So, you know, looking at the surgery, and, and I'll show you some uh, templates for modified inguinal lymphadenectomy, you wonder, why do you have to put somebody through this sort of big open procedure, especially in the clinical N0 space, and expose them to all of these risks? So, uh, looking back at series of complications of open inguinal lymphadenectomy. So, this is a series from BJU International, um, looking at, I think it was uh, over 300 patients, and of those, 55% had a complication. The minor complications, thankfully more common, 65%. And major complications were 34%. So you'll see here, skin flap necrosis, 12, 12%. So that's still quite high. Um, but the more common uh, issues are seromas and a wound infection. And then you can look down here, they compare their series of 55% overall complications to other series. And that basically showed you can have as high as 90% almost complications in open inguinal lymphadenectomy series, or as low as 20%. So there remains room for improvement. And, and this is sort of the nidus for uh, pushing forth robotics in the clinical N0 space. A quick re refresher for the uh, residents in terms of anatomy, but basically we're talking about on the lateral border side, that's a medial aspect of the sartorius muscle. On the medial aspect, we're talking about the adductor longus and the, their, the lateral border of the adductor longus, and then the inguinal ligament. And within here, you have the saphenous vein going into the femoral vein and the fossa ovalis. So this is the area where we will be dissecting when we do a robotic inguinal lymphadenectomy. Now, many of you are probably are familiar with the modified um, uh, inguinal lymphadenectomy as opposed to a radical inguinal lymphadenectomy. So the radical inguinal lymphadenectomy is, is that whole area completely unsheathed, the fascia is taken off the muscles, skeletonizing the vessels. And that's where a lot of the morbidity is. But Dr. Catalona in 1988 uh, published a series of patients with a modified inguinal lymphadenectomy, particularly in these N0 patients, where basically you limit the dissection six centimeters, uh, sorry, it's eight centimeters below the inguinal link, uh, ligament, and then six centimeters above that. And the, the width of the dissection is about 10 centimeters. So it's a very finite, discrete area within that femoral triangle where you're trying to dissect those nodes. And they showed less flat necrosis, um, the, the uh, less wound infection, less uh, lymphocytes rates. So overall, less morbidity with a modified approach. 
So extrapolating on that modified approach is what the robotic approach uh, was designed to be built upon. So the first published report of robotics in inguinal lymphadenectomy was in 2009. Again, they used the modified superficial inguinal lymphadenectomy. And again, they limited it to, to clinically negative groins. And um, obviously you, you don't wanna start with a big bulky lymph node or, or something that has risk of extranodal extension because you worry about local recurrences. And then from there, fast forward to 2018, Singh et al. published in the Journal of Urology as the largest series, which is 51 patients. And you know we're used to these huge series in robotic prostatectomy and cystectomy, and people say, wow, 51 is nothing. That's actually a huge series for a robotic inguinal lymphadenectomy uh, uh, series. And again, the potential benefit here is decreased morbidity. So summarizing basically what the, the uh, Singh et al. studies showed, they compared their historic series of about 100 open inguinal lymphadenectomies to their uh, robotic series, 51 patients. And they basically found that the open inguinal lymphadenectomy was associated with an increased risk of major complications compared to the robotic approach. So if you look here on their multi, multivariate analysis, it's about seven times the odds ratios, uh, seven times more likely to have uh, compl major complications with the open approach relative to the robotic approach. Interestingly, you know, I'm sure this is a center of excellence based on the volume, their complication rate in general was very low, 17% for the open, one of the lowest I've ever seen, and 2% for the robotic approach. So, you know, this is, you have to keep in mind that this is not, you know, everybody's typical experience. This is a very specialized center that does this. But again, showing that there's some benefit with respect to complications for the robotic versus the open approach. So um, uh, two years ago, we published our experience and our technique of how we do this using actually near-infrared fluorescence as well. So one of the things with the inguinal lymphadenectomy, especially when you do it robotic, it, it's very easy to get lost. And I will tell you straight up that you know, you're, you're, you're in there in this space and you're wondering to yourself, where's medial, where's lateral, where are the lymph nodes? And we found that using uh, ICG or endocyanin green, which is used in the Firefly and the Da Vinci, um, the most uh, recent version, Da Vinci XTI, can help you to visualize the lymph nodes. And I'll show you some videos that are, are pretty cool um, to show you to help aid in your dissection. Um, so first starting off, a lot of people ask, so how do you even make the space? How do you put the ports in? So um, basically, using the right side as an example, you go 25 centimeters, 20 to 25 centimeters from the inguinal ligament, bisecting this triangle here that you make from the pubic tubercle and the ASIS. And then that's where you place your camera port. That's where you start your uh, dissection to build your pocket. And I'm gonna show you a video of that in a second. Then lateral to that, you, you put your other robot arms anywhere from six to eight centimeters, depending on the patient's body habitus. And then you have an assistant in between your camera and your uh, lateral arm. A couple of other tips is that, and this is where you know my residents complain bitterly, is they get squashed in between the camera and the lateral arm. And to minimize that, you know, you, you can have extended trocars so they're not their hand is not right in between there. And then I actually use an eight millimeter air seal port as opposed to the, the bigger 12 millimeter port. Um, and then it's basically mirroring the same thing on the opposite side for the left side. And you can do this at the same time, basically. And I'll show you how that's done, which saves a lot of time. So in my learning curve, when I first started, I chose one side and then that basically um, you know, took forever. And then we had to uh, try to do it tandem at both sides. Um, 
so this is how we establish what we call pneumoderma. And it, it's funny because I remember vividly, there was a, a, a vascular surgeon, I don't know if he's probably still there, Gina, Dr. Noigrad, who he used to do tunnel dialysis catheters. And I remember making pockets for the, the catheter as an intern or learning how to do that. And then when I first did this, that's exactly what it reminded me of. Anyway, you make an incision in the skin and basically you take your finger, you, you first cut at a layer um, just above scarpa's fascia and you take your finger and you gently dissect in there. You put in the trocar and then you just insufflate the space up to about, usually I do 10 or 12 millimeters of mercury. Um, one interesting thing, you know, we did this sort of for the video where we're looking our ports in, but this is different than the peritoneal space. You, you really don't need to look your ports in. If you put your finger in that space and push onto your finger, you can do this pretty quickly without having to follow yourself in a limited space and do it safely. I know people worry about vascular injury here, but if you're doing it right onto your finger in that space, you're fine. You don't need to actually look at the ports. So this is how we place the ports in that space after it's created. And that's what it looks like at the end. Okay. Um, so this just is a schematic showing again, the fibro fatty tissue that we're gonna remove. And then this is how, uh, this was published in a, a textbook actually, penile cancer by Viraj Master, who's a very well-known uh, surgeon for endoscopic lymphadenectomy. And this just shows you how you're creating that space there, um, just above Scarpa's fascia, and you try to maintain some uh, uh, fatty layer on the skin so you don't devascularize it too much. All right, so the other thing we do here is we inject endocyanin green directly into the penile lesion. So I injected about two cc's into this gentleman's uh, um, lesion in the penis right here. And basically I did it around so that it would then drain. And this was about a half an hour before the actual surgery. And then this is where we start to develop the plane uh, cradially toward the inguinal ligament. So here we're basically aiming staying above scarpers up towards the inguinal ligament. And this is where you can get lost if you're not paying attention. You have to have your assistant keep you sort of in line and aiming straight up towards the inguinal ligament. The ICG shows us where nodes are. And as you go, go up, you also have to keep in mind where the depth of the skin is so you don't uh, devascularize the skin and you wanna actually aim down towards the inguinal ligament as you're dissecting. And you can see in this little video here, you start to see the shiny white of the inguinal ligament. That's the light at the end of the tunnel as you're dissecting. But you can get a pretty nice space in there, which I'll show you in another video. Um, this is when we're using the lymph nodes, to, sorry, the ICG to detect additional lymph nodes. So again, up here, there's the inguinal ligament. You see this fatty tissue and you're like, I think I have nodes here. I'm not sure. How can you be certain? So the, in the uh, inferior medial echelon in this particular um, dissection, you can see that I'm toggling between ICG and just regular white light. And that shows me where uh, the lymphatic drainage is and where the nodes are. So at least I know, you know, when we're going through this dissection, all this work is not for nothing. I'm, I'm getting a good nodal yield by doing this. Some people have asked, well, can you use it for the sentinel node? Yes, sure you can. But, you know, there's a lot of work here still left to be done as to whether or not, you know, the most people think the superior medial echelon is the first echelon of nodes that should drain. But when doing this, I've actually seen that's not the first one where some of this ICG goes. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done still on sentinel dissections. Um, this just goes, this actually is shifted. It should be right here. The saphenous vein is right here. So the packet is all of this fatty tissue here. And this is where the fossovalis is. Going on to the next side. Um, and then again, the superior medial um, 
packet is the first echelon of lymph nodes. And this is just a, another um, video showing how we dissect that superior medial sentinel uh, lymph node packet. And up top here is the inguinal ligament. Again, you can see there's a lot of work in space once you've established that pneumoderma. And the ICG is basically directing me where to go so that I can be sure that I get those lymph nodes and I toggle back and forth between there. And then a couple other things I've done differently is there's a vessel seal device with the robot that I use. So you have to use a lot of clips here and that slows you down. But with the vessel seal device, I've actually found that I've had to use less clips and I found no real difference in terms of seromas or lymphocytes, which still remain a problem. And I'll show you that in a second. Um, and then this is kind of more of the same. I won't take too much time going through this, but basically this is the final central packet that sits above, you know, with the saphenous vein and above the femoral vessels. Again, this is a superficial node dissection. So we're not going deep or skeletonizing um, the femoral vessels in this video. But you'll see here the uh, final finished product, which I'll fast forward for you here. Again, using clips to limit the amount of uh, lymphatic leakage when we remove this packet. And you actually at the end get quite a big packet. You can see here, the inguinal ligament, saphenous vein, and you can clean it out pretty well. I put the, the nodes in, a, in the same bag we use for a prostatectomy. So in follow-up, um, my patients here in Miami apparently don't like to wash the tape residue off of their legs, but <laughs> this is one guy who uh, we did. This was two weeks post-op. And you can see there's really very minimal scarring. There's minimal bruising. I mean, I actually have started sending patients home the same day after this operation. Uh, especially if we're doing it stage and unilateral versus bilateral. And I haven't had any issues with pain or readmissions. And I'll show you some of our outcomes data. The drains we do leave in, I don't put people on bed rest. They're up and walking that evening. Um, and they basically go home the following morning. Uh, so this is our series today. We've done 12 patients, which is basically 24 groins. Uh, the median lymph node yield is 10 per groin, which is a, a pretty good number. And I'll show you some data on that afterwards. Our operative time, we started out slow, like everything else. You know, we were up to 300 minutes in the beginning. And then we've got it down to basically about two hours per groin. Now, the, the two hours per groin is from uh, setting up the pneumoderma to docking and to doing the dissection. So, you know, it does take time to, to get that down. And that's part of the learning curve. Very minimal blood loss. Again, patients go home the same day. Now, in terms of complications, as you can see here, complications still remain an issue, but they're different. I've never had flat necrosis, never had any major infections. All of these are basically seromas or lymphocytes in this particular area where we had to stick a drain in. Other than that, um, no pain, no neuropathies, uh, no DVTs. So really, I feel that the morbidity is much less with this approach. In terms of node status, so you'll see we actually did, so the first six I did were, were node zero. And then I started to get a little bit braver, like most people do when they start to, you know, get beyond the learning curve and took a few node positive cases. And these are the outcomes. So um, about 42% of them turned out to actually have node positive disease and uh, went on to have either pelvic node dissection or chemo. And then these are the uh, outcomes. Again, most of these were seromas or uh, lymphedema um, or lymphocytes, seroma slash lymphocyte, and they required a drain placement. So the main concern here is, is oncologic efficacy, sorry, efficacy. How many nodes define an adequate node dissection and can we actually perform an adequate lymph node dissection? So we did work looking at the number of lymph nodes uh, to see 
um, what's an adequate lymph node dissection, how many lymph nodes predict survival. And what we found was that the magic number was 15 or 16. Basically, if you had greater than 15 nodes, i.e. 16 nodes, and that's total, then you did an adequate lymph node dissection. So cutting that in half, basically you need a minimum of eight per side to have an adequate lymph node dissection. Why did we say it was adequate? Because if you look at the survival here, if you had less than uh, 15 nodes, your overall survival was 50%, and this is data from NCDB uh, in over 300 patients. The, uh, if you had more than 15 nodes, then your overall survival was 73%, and that was statistically significant in terms of survival difference. And if you just limited it to T2 N0 patients, it, it wasn't quite statistically significant, but again, there was a difference in overall survival at that cut point of 15 total uh, nodes. And then we did a multivariate analysis that basically confirmed controlling for all the other variables that you'd expect to affect overall survival. So the, the cancer variable stage, grade, and then other things such as age, um, type of surgery. Still, the number of lymph nodes was a, a statistically significant independent predictor of uh, worse survival. So less than or, or less than 15 nodes is associated with worse survival. So you have to aim at getting roughly eight or more per side or total uh, 15. But it's NCDB, so there are limitations. It's retrospective. They didn't talk about the template, so not much technical detail there. Uh, they didn't uh, say whether this was inguinal and pelvic or just inguinal alone. So the data in NCDB, as many of you who have done NCDB analyses know, it's not very granular. And then lastly, you know, there's a lot of very tumor-specific variables like lymphovascular invasion or histologic subtype that may impact survival and how aggressive these cancers are. And we couldn't control for that. But again, we, within the limitations of this data, we have some idea of what an adequate lymph node dissection is, and that's around 15 or more. Now, the question is, can we get 15 or more in uh, a robotic uh, lymph node dissection? And I'll take you back to our series of just 12 patients where already we're getting tw uh, 10 lymph nodes per groin. Um, I've had patients where I've gotten in total up to 50 lymph nodes out of the groin, but a lot of that has to do anatomic variation and everybody is different. But um, yes, we can get uh, an adequate lymph node dissection. This is data from a phase one study done at MD Anderson, which they looked at their 10 series. And just looking at the numbers of uh, lymph nodes removed in these series, again, you'll see that it's somewhere around 15 or more when you combine both sides. So they were getting also a good lymph node yield here in this series of a, uh, basically a robotic uh, phase one trial of robotic inguinal lymphadenectomy. And some of these patients actually had positive nodes and they went on to do deep inguinal lymph nodes. Now, deep inguinal lymph nodes uh, can be resected robotically. I've done that in two cases um, without any, any issues, but uh, usually I'll send a frozen of the superficial and if it's positive, then I'll do the deep. But in clinical N0 cases, the likelihood of you needing to do that is pretty low. Uh, so the question about performing an adequate lymph node dissection, I will say yes, we can, but you know, you really need good data and larger series. And as you can see, penile cancer is a rare condition. Uh, so having that data is probably going to take a while. So in conclusion, the robotic approach is technically feasible for a modified uh, superficial inguinal lymph node dissection. And based on our experience and that of others, it may have less wound-related morbidity than the open approach. The main thing is you still have the seroma and lymphocytes that form, and I haven't found a way to fix that yet. If any of you smart residents want to work on something and help me out here, 
I would very much appreciate it. But that's always been a challenge, having to leave the draining up to four weeks to minimize that. That's all I've, I've done so far. I've tried talc uh, powder in the area, which doesn't seem to help. Um, so it's still an issue. But no flat necrosis, no infections, again, no pain, minimal length of stay. And then there's a question of cost, um, if you look at the cost. But if you think about you know, one patient that may have flat necrosis or a wound infection that needs a wound vac and has to go to rehab will basically wipe out any uh, higher cost uh, that you will get with a robot. So, um, you know, the cost benefit remains to be seen. So a lot of studies could be done here, you know, any center of excellence that has a lot of penile cancer cases, and also can we expand it to node positive disease. So with that, I will say thank you very much. It really has been an honor to give a talk um, in this Empire Lecture Series where, I mean, some very, very uh, famous urologists and very impressive folks have uh, spoken and just being considered and being allowed to speak with uh, you guys today is an honor for me because um, it wasn't that long ago I sat in your shoes. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Rich. That was an outstanding review. And um, it's just, uh, it's just, uh, I don't know. So I have so much uh, pride and joy when I see you, when I see you talk, just reminiscing from uh, our days of training. We have actually a familiar voice in the chat function. Dr. Her Terry Hensel wanted to give you a shout out to say that you've done a great job and he really enjoyed your talk. Um, Thank you. Can you talk to us a little bit more about your management of the JP post-op? How long do you yeah. leave it in, um, things of that nature? Great question. So um, at first I left it in uh, for two weeks, just sort of arbitrarily thinking that, um, you know, if I got it to two weeks and if the drain output was 100 cc's or less, uh, that would be fine. But what I found was a lot of times these drains got clogged and you had to strip the drains. So uh, routinely I bring them in at two weeks I strip the drain, see if there's anything else draining. If it is truly less than 100 cc's, then I'll take it out at two weeks. If there's still drainage after stripping the JP, then I'll leave it in for four weeks. And I'll say most people by four weeks end up um, with the drain out. Um, I guess there's a question, oh, sorry. Sorry. You mentioned that you stage your groin dissections in some cases. Can you um, discuss your criteria for that? Yeah. So the clinical N0 cases, I typically offer them a bilateral, you know, um, combined case. Whereas if there's any question, if it's palpable, then I'll just do uh, just that one side that day because I expect to have to go deep or do a bigger dissection. But that's pretty much how I decide but at clinical N0, I do bilateral. Okay. Any contraindications to a robotic approach, such as, you know, a morbidly obese patient or someone yeah. with underlying vascular disease? Would you be more inclined to do that open? Um, no, actually, I've done morbidly obese folks, and it's been pretty much the same. Um, once you create that space and you have the pneumo, everything sort of, uh, you know, opens itself up just fine. Um, but the main contraindication is if they truly have like bulky fixed nodes, I, I will not do it because I'm worried about cutting into the nodes and seed in the area. Um, there's a question about compression stockings. Compression. I do use, yeah, I do use compression stockings. So I put them on right before the surgery and that's pretty much the only thing I'll do there is put compression stockings on there and then, uh, 
you know, I tell the patients to keep them on until I see them two weeks later, you know, keep wearing them, but that's it. And I do, I do give them a DVT prophylaxis. I do give them sub-Q heparin. Okay, perfect. Um, so I think that's most of our questions in the chat function. I'm going to invite Dr. Rothnut uh, to and start loading up his slides. And before we have you go, uh, Dr. Rich, can we never got to talk about this at the beginning of the talk, but you're somebody that has always been very involved in medical education of both the medical student and resident level. Um, you were committed to this as a resident. I remember you would always have teaching rounds with our team at the end of the day. Um, so can you talk to us about any innovative approaches to, to resident education during this COVID pandemic? You've you've done, you've used at Miami or any advice you want to give to residents or medical students in the New York section? Yeah, um, I guess, you know, I, I wish I had something really innovative or groundbreaking, but, I, you know, one of the things, I, I don't really have anything innovative or groundbreaking, but I do um, try to keep in mind is that given the fact that, especially for graduate and chief residents, that they've been sort of out of the OR for a few months. And once the OR start to open up, I think a lot of attendings, and I've tried to encourage my colleagues here, need to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, we need to get our senior and chief residents uh, more hands-on and to be very cognizant of getting them console time and making sure that they're, they're able to do some cases before they graduate. You know, there's only a few weeks left. So really it's just kind of, we're, we're doing all the lectures now, they have the didactics, it's just getting them um, a lot of console time and being a little bit more aggressive about uh, putting them right, you know, hands-on in front of the patient. So that's pretty much what we're trying to do here as best as we can. 